tonight our discussion begins in 11, uh, the, the, the 11th chapter of Romans and verse 32. That's where we ended a couple of weeks ago in our study of God's rejection of the Jews. The ninth, tenth, and the chapter, ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapter of Romans. As we're finishing up the eleventh chapter here, those three chapters deal with one primary thought. Uh, as Paul vindicates God for rejecting the Jews, uh, let me ask you one question before we get into this, though. When a father <clears throat> takes a son into the bedroom or out to the barn, however it may be, for punishment, is it just justice, a just judgment, or is it deliverance and salvation? When God rejected the Jews, it was for their salvation, and that's what Paul's going to tell them this evening, as we look at it, verse 32. <clears throat> so. He's presenting point number five, if you've been making an outline. And in point number five, his final point, uh, these things are all in harmony with divine purpose. God had purpose in it. He had purpose in rejecting the Jews. And we've already seen part of that purpose was to make uh, the Jew jealous by turning to the Gentiles. You remember... <clears throat> We looked in Acts, I forget exactly where it was at, but in the history of Paul and his travels, uh, where he went, every time he went into a city uh, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he was an apostle chosen by God to go to the Gentiles. And when he did, he always went to the Jew first, didn't he? He went to the synagogue. He tried to convince his own countrymen and they wouldn't listen to him. And so he told them, he said, your blood be on your own heads, and he turned to the Gentiles. That was his main purpose. And in that uh, judgment that God brought upon Israel in A.D. 70, it is true that he destroyed uh, the rebellious, the student rebellion to him. But at the same time, the ones that were left over had an opportunity to repent. And so his salvation, his offer to save all Israel was still there. And that's the point that Paul's been making. All Israel, not everyone that was of Israel, but all of Israel who was of that remnant that he foresaw before the foundation of the world. You remember in our study we covered that. <laughs> All right, so here in verse 32, Paul says, For God hath shut up all uh, unto disobedience for the purpose that he might have mercy upon all. So <clears throat> God's desire is to do what? Show mercy upon all. Now, in order to show mercy upon all Israel, what must he do? Well, he must, as it says there, he must uh, 
He says that all Israel uh, unto disobedience. So what's the purpose of shutting the whole nation up under disobedience and letting Rome come down upon it and blow it into nothing as they did in A.D. 70? The purpose of it was to save the all. As he says in verse, uh, verse 26, uh, all Israel. Uh, and so he's discussing in all of this this fact, and so all Israel shall be saved. That's the ones that will listen. They weren't saved just because they were of Israel. Paul makes his uh, presentation in Romans 2 that you're not God's Jew just because you can trace your seed lineage back to Abraham. God's Jew is one who has a faith like faith Father Abraham. That's God's man. Uh, Abraham is designated in scriptures being the father of the faithful. You remember Lazarus? He went to where? To Abraham's bosom. To the Jew that was Eltopia, that was heaven. Now how's God going to save all Israel by shutting them all up under disobedience they've got to find out they're lost before they seek salvation and what's the primary problem of the Jew well he didn't think he was lost and so God had to show him he was lost there is no salvation in Judaism Judaism was a shadow that pointed to the one who would bring salvation like John began his gospel in John 1.17. He said the law came by Moses, that thing that condemned. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so uh, uh, they've got to find out that they're lost before uh, they even begin to seek salvation. Now, that's a principle of how God dealt with the Jews. And that's a principle that teaches us how to deal with our fellow man. When you go to someone uh, to present salvation's plan to them, what's the first thing you've got to do? You've got to deliver them to Satan. In other words, you've got to show them that they're lost, that they need what you're fixing to present about Christ to them. They have to see that. If they don't see that, they don't think they're lost. They don't know they're lost. And so here's a principle by which God dealt with the Jews. He not only uh, used the Gentiles to make them jealous, uh, but he also uh, brought judgment upon them, and in that judgment is salvation. All the way through the Old Testament, every time God judged a nation, what was the end result? Let me put it another way. When God allied all of the nations, America, Italy, uh, all the nations, France, uh, against Germany, against Hitler, against the Third Reich, when God did that, was there salvation in it? Absolutely. Was that his purpose? Absolutely. He's out to save all men. 
as he said on many occasions, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. He would that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Every one of us. But that ain't going to be the case, and it wasn't the case with Israel. But Israel as a nation had to see that there was no hope in Judaism. It merely pointed to the cross, that's all. And those people who were saved under in Judaism were ones who uh, walked by faith. As Habakkuk 2.4 says, the just shall live not by the law, by faith. Why did God send the law? Well, we've looked at that too many times, haven't we? You can go to Romans 3, verse 19, and Paul will tell you very clearly why God sent the law. That every mouth may be stopped. That the whole world may become guilty before God. And then in verse 20, he says, Therefore, uh, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight by the law. For by the law is merely the knowledge of sin. But the Jew, he didn't know he was lost. He was relishing in this idea that he was God's chosen people. He didn't realize what he was chosen for. As a nation, they were to be a shadow of better things to come. Their sacrifices and everything about their rules and regulations of religious order were uh, in the mold of a presentation uh, in figures and things of better things to come. They didn't realize that. And so they've got to find out they're lost before they seek salvation. What happened to those Jews in Acts 2? Peter declared them to be murderers of the very Messiah they waited on. Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. And those, <coughs> those Jews were convicted, weren't they? They were convicted not just by Peter. He was just the spokesman. He used Old Testament prophecy, the prophecies of David, King David, and others, and eyewitness testimony, and the testimony that they had by the miracles that they had witnessed Jesus doing. And so they were convicted, and they cried out in verse 37, <coughs> brethren, what should we do? And so their salvation came by uh, them coming first to realize that they were lost even though they were Jews. And so Paul's given an explanation as to why God rejected the Jews. He rejected them basically because of their uh, uh, rejection of him. Remember the 10th chapter, verse 1 and 2? Paul said, he stated the problem there. He said, uh, my heart's desire, brethren, and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You mean they weren't saved? That's exactly what he said. That they might be saved. He said, For I bear them record to have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then he explains even further this zeal without knowledge. He said, For going about to establish their own righteousness, in doing so they have rejected the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. And so, all Israel can be saved are the ones in Israel that uh, have the heart of repentance, is what he's discussing, that, that uh, remnant. Because 
Paul's already made the argument that God, before he ever made the world, had in mind of he had uh, salvation for a remnant. He speaks of a remnant also, Jesus does in the New Testament. He says, Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to hell. Many there be enter therein. That's not a remnant. That's the majority. But then he said on the other side of the coin, very narrow and straight is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And so there's the many over here that's headed to hell, and the few, a remnant. God's in the remnant business. You see that all the way through the Old Testament. He's a God of remnants. Not because he wants it that way, but that's the way it turns out. And so all Israel, which will be the remnant, will be saved. But salvation is still available to them. They think that they've been rejected, and that's the end of the matter. And, God, and Paul's telling them, no, you're not, you're not. You're rejected as a nation. How in the world are they going to understand the doctrine of Christ unless the guts are stamped out of Judaism? There has to be a point in time where Judaism ends. You know where it ended? A.D. 70. A.D. 70. Where there wasn't, like Jesus said, there wasn't one stone left upon another that wasn't dismantled, tore down. The temple and the city was destroyed. <coughs> As God, through Titus, the Roman general, brought an end to Judaism in a final, in a very final way. And so... Uh, They've got to find out that they're lost before they uh, seek salvation. And what's the primary problem of the Jew? He didn't know he was lost. He didn't think he was lost. He was God's people. Is that attitude with us still today? It is. It's wrong, but it's still with us. Oh, the Jew, that's God's people. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Remember Romans 2? Paul makes the argument. You're not a Jew. You're not God's people just because you can trace your seed lineage back to Abraham. God's Jew is one who walks by faith. And the man that has faith is the seed of Abraham, God's people. So that's the primary problem in many of our uh, conversations with religious folk, isn't it? They don't realize they're lost. And sad to say, a lot of times we don't show them that they're lost. The church has been filled up with a, a bunch of sweet old people that other old people in the churches went and said, well, why don't you join us down at the Church of Christ? We have such a wonderful conger, a congregation. Why, it's, it's loving and understanding, and it has picnics and parties and Camp Cucamonga down in the forest of the Blue Mountains and this, that, and the other. <clears throat> they're not convincing them that they're sin. They're in sin. They're lost. They're cut off from God. And the only hope is their obedience to the gospel. They don't realize that. They think they're just wonderful people because that's how you speak to them. You've got to convince people that they're, they're in danger. They're looking a water moxing right in the mouth. There's a danger there. They've got to see that. Jew didn't see that. He thought, I'm God's people because I'm a Jew. 
how many people in the church? I'm God's people because I'm a member of the church of Christ. I remember being baptized. <laughs> I don't go anymore, but <laughs> I have no desire to study his word, but I'm saved. Just like the Jew. <coughs> and so, <coughs> their very re religious ology makes them think that they're not lost. I mean the fact that they're they're active religiously. Uh, they don't believe that. they believe sincerely. Uh, they're committed totally, and they're uh, 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 <coughs> they're active to the core. They are. That's what Paul said in Romans ten one two of it, it wasn't it? My heart's desire, prayer to God for His to be saved. I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you see a zeal for God in the denominational world? Out here in these churches that are lost and think they're saved? They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. For they're going about to establish their own righteousness, and in doing so, what have they done? They've rejected the righteousness of God. The only way of salvation. And therefore they feel no need for salvation. You ever talk to somebody about salvation and they come up with this statement, Well, I've always been good. Why? Like one old boy, he told Butch's dad, he said, Why would God be angry with me? I've never killed anybody. <laughs> he didn't have a clue, did he? <laughs> but somehow you and I need to get them to feel the fire. They've got to recognize the danger in front of them, the mox, the water moxin, the thing that's going to kill them. They've got to know they're lost before they can be saved. Now that's exactly what God did to Israel, wasn't it? Uh, now he did it ultimately with a fellow named Titus, a Roman general. And so God came upon his people with his wrath for their disobedience and their rebellion. Uh, and he done so in the form of Titus. Now there's a guy by the name of Abba Elan. He wrote a book called The History of Israel. He was a Jew. And this is, I find this interesting myself. And in that book, when he gets to that part of Israel's history in the first century, he got a section on Christianity. I don't know what the fella is from his writings. I'd say he's a, a Zionist and not too much of a believer in God. But this uh, Abba Eben if I'm pronouncing his right name correctly, he was a great Jewish statesman. He was prime minister before Mrs. whatever her name is. Anyway, Abin, uh, Abba Bayan said in, in his book that two things 
spread Christianity in the first century. Now he's writing about the history of the first century. And he said two things happened in the first century uh, that spread Christianity. He said one was our fault and one was not our fault. As he speaks to the Jew. He said one I cannot explain. He said number one was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The chief uh, advocator of the faith. Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles. You knew that though. And number two was the destruction of our city, Jerusalem. And so he recognized those two things as what spread Christianity. And that's what Paul said to the Jews here. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. None is outside the mercy of God. So is it wrong to give great emphasis uh, in the New Testament to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and the destruction of Jerusalem? This fellow looked at history and he saw it, what, God, what Paul's presenting here. Uh, he, he saw exactly what the New Testament taught about this. But those are the two great uh, apologetics, the two great apologetics for the truth of Scripture, for the deity of Jesus, and for the uniqueness of the church is the conversion of Saul who spread it and the destruction of the city that, spared, that separated it. Paul, uh, Paul spread the church throughout all of the world. He's the one that made those missionary journeys in the book of Acts all over the world, known world at that time. But when he came to Rome, the church spread throughout all the world. What did the Jew in Rome think the church was. They thought it was just a Jewish sect. That's all. They thought it was an addition to Judaism. And so the destruction of Judaism and uh, the continuance of the church. Uh, so the conversion of Saul spread it, spread the gospel and salvation to mankind and the destruction of the city separated it. So you have the spreading of it and you have the separation of it. When God destroyed Jerusalem, it separated it. And so the rejection of Israel, uh, Israel part of, it was part of the divine plan. It's a part of the divine purpose that he had in mind. That's why Paul goes into this uh, doxology and his praise to God. Because there's things about God and His plan that you and I cannot reach with our understanding. I don't know how to tell you this, but you do not have the mental ability to understand all of the things of God. Job didn't, and neither do you. <coughs> all right, that finishes out Paul's argument as to why God rejected the Jews. He was vindicated in rejecting them because they needed to be rejected. And he brought salvation in his judgment of rejection. God brought salvation to Germany. Uh, after World War II, uh, I heard uh, 
missionaries speak of how open and how receptive the gospel was in Germany after World War II. They got the guts kicked out of them. I mean, you know when they was building the Third Reich, when they was hollering, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Biden, Heil Obama. While they was building that thing, at the same time, they were going to churches. <coughs> they were, they, they carried Bibles like this. Did they understand them? No. Did they want to understand them? Not necessarily, or they would have. Hard-headed people, the majority that's headed to hell. But after the war, after God stepped in and kicked the guts out of them with all the allies, America, Russia, China, or not China, but Turkey, France, and them nations, all allied together at the command of God, at the will of God, at the wish, at the desire of God. Because nothing happens without his divine command or his allowance. And they went over and kicked the guts out of Germany. The, fact, the sad thing about it, while we killed the Third Reich in war, we were building it right here in America. You remember the cartoons of yesteryear? It was always this real staunch guy and this good-looking girl that was his companion, and they traveled around, and they, they seen that justice was done here and justice was done there, and they preached the very thing. The soldiers lost their lives fighting against the Third Reich, the superior race. Our cartoons was teaching the next generation and the devil is laughing his butt off at our stupidity because we didn't see it. We're seeing it now, ain't we? We got a, na a nation of ingrates, of, of a nation of people who think that they are somebody because they're, I'm a market. Yeah, nobody going to defeat us over here. You want to bet? We're already defeated in ideology. Never been a bullet fired over here, but we're defeated because of our ideology. When we left God, we went into total darkness. The only way out is the light of God's Word. Anyway, so now, as Paul continues his thesis on the Gospel of Christ, verse uh, well, verse 33 through verse 36, Paul bursts into praise. Here's his doxology. All right? Now, there's only one thing to do when you get done with a section like Paul did here, and that's to praise God. Because God's object is the salvation of all men. And he rejected the Jew, as some might be saved, that was listening. And so that's exactly what Paul does at what might be called apostolic doxology. doxology. You understand the word doxology. It comes from two Greek words. Dox is glory. 
Ology comes from the word logos. It's a word. And so it's a word of glory. And that's what Paul uh, uses here is a word of glory to God in verse 33 through 36. Doxology is a word of glory. He says, let me glorify God uh, a while. Because he's already showed the Jew God's wise plan that's actually beyond our comprehension. How God, why God does some of the things he does. We don't question God, we trust God. Just because we don't understand something, we don't question God. Job tried that, didn't he? Didn't work. God says, hey little peon, stand up like a man and declare. Where was you when I, made, when I laid the foundation of the earth? You little peon, where was you? Tell me about it. And it isn't very long until Job says, listen, can I shut my mouth? I have no more to say in front of my maker. You and I have to come to that same point, don't we? we got to come to grips that we're not smarter than God. We ain't even as near as smart as God. And so Paul sees God's wise plan in rejecting the Jews that they might be saved. They had to be rejected. They had to come to realize that there were no salvation in Judaism. It's in Christ. What's going to teach them that lesson permanently? The destruction of the city and the, the temple. And that's exactly what happened. Not one stone left upon another. <coughs> All right, so... Here's Paul's doxology, a word of glory. Uh, he starts out by contemplating the divine attributes of God. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. And so he talks about the wealth, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. He says the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So God has three attributes here. His wealth, his wisdom, and his knowledge. Uh, one is his uh, resources. God has how many resources? Infinite and so one is his wise counsel. How much wise counsel does he have? Infinite wisdom to plan with purpose. And one is the knowledge to carry out that wise counsel that he has through the resources that he has. Uh, so infinite resources, infinite wisdom to plan, and infinite knowledge to carry out the plan with those resources. Next, the divine attributes described in verse 33 through 36. If you notice, the verses are the same because in uh, reality, this doxology cannot be logically outlined. How can you outline a word of praise and love? He praises the depths of God's knowledge and speaking of his unsearchable judgments. He praises the depths of God's wisdom in speaking of his untrackable ways. And he praises 
the depths of God's wealth and his independence from all of his gifts. So God stands separate from all of his gifts. Verse 36, For of him there's the source, and through him there's the means, and unto him there's the end are all things, as the verse says. Oh, the depths are the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Well, what do you mean, Paul? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Paul gets got the point, didn't he? He was inspired to write chapter 9, 10, and 11. And has he gotten the point of what they said? What's chapter 9 through 11 say? Hey, don't question God. That's what the Jew was doing. You don't question God. Isn't that what they said? And so, uh, through them three chapters, and so the creature says to the creator, Hey, why did you do that? What's the, what's the creator going to say? It's none of your business. You remember when the apostles in Acts 1 had a conference with Jesus before he ascended into heaven and he spoke to them for 40 days and nights pertaining to the kingdom and they asked him, Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? What did the Lord say? Well, he didn't use these words, but that's what he meant. It's none of your business. He said, it's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father's placed in his own power. But you shall receive power uh, from on high. Uh, so wait at Jerusalem until that happens. So uh, if you don't believe that, just ask Job about questioning God. Job questioned the righteousness of God through his book, and he wanted to have an argument with God and in chapter 31, verse 35, he said to God, Oh, I wish I had the indictment my adversary has written. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer that. So he questioned God. Now you've got to keep in mind that God told Satan, There's not another man like Job, a righteous and an upright man. Didn't God know that Job was going to have this bitterness and this? Did God allow it? Did God still love him? Yes, he did. Because Romans 4, 17, God calls those things to be not as though they already were. He looks down through the corridors of time, and he sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything. He knew what Job was going to do. But that's part of growing, isn't it? That's part of developing, isn't it? Uh, so, Job challenging God to a debate. Uh, uh, resolved, Job is righteous. Affirmative, Job is negative. Sign it, Lord, and we'll argue. That's basically what you see in the book of Job. Well, anybody that does that had better get ready to argue, hadn't he? And so God appears in a whirlwind in the last of the book, and he says to Job, okay, now, if you gird up your loins like a man and make answer to me, we will our, uh, our, uh, we will have ourselves an argument. But before we have an argument, 
Let me give you the uh, entrance exam. And so God begins the entrance exam here. It's going to set the stage for this argument. He says, where was you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? Did you decide how big the world would be? Did you say to the sea, hitherto shalt thou come and no further? And here shalt thou proud waves be stayed? Pardon me, Job, I didn't catch your answer. Job right off the get-go is realizing how insignificant he is in the sight of God. You and I couldn't need to know that. This world does not know that. I talked to a fellow the other day that's my age. I worked with him. I never tried to preach to him. I didn't get a chance. Before I did, though, he talked about how that he's done, made his uh, agreement with God, and he's okay with God. And he belongs to the Mason group. He's okay because he's a Mason. He's okay because he's of a Jewish sect. That's how the Jews thought. That's how a lot of people think. But you don't get very far in reading the Bible with a will to understand it until you come to realize you're nothing. God's the only one that can make something out of you. And he wants desperately to do that. But you ain't nothing. He'll describe you as dust upon the earth. There's nothing. But we get so proud. Well, look what I am. I looked in the mirror and I sang my song. I love me. I wish Atlanta Peck. Yeah, we're proud like peacocks. We strut. Don't we? And so I can see God speaking to Job. I didn't catch your answer, Job. Have you walked on the ocean floor? Do you know where I keep the rain and the snow? And you say, uh, thunder and it thunders. You call the lightning and it comes down. Do you have that power? Well, Job, if you can't take care of that, let me talk about the animals. Do you feed the lions and the ravens? Does the hawk fly at your command? Did you give the ostrich his beautiful plumage and the peacock his beautiful feathers? Did you plow with the wild ox? Do you ride down the river on the crocodile? Does the hippopotamus lick your hand like a puppy dog? Excuse me, Job, I didn't hear your answer. Now we stand in Job's shoes in our suffrage. We don't have a right to question God. Hasn't God proved his integrity already in the creation and in the love of a cross that still stands and will continue to stand? <clears throat> so Job said in the 40th chapter, verse 3 through 9, Once have I uh, spoken. And now he lays his hand on his mouth and he said, I'm not going to talk anymore. But that wasn't good enough. He needed to repent. And so God hit him again. And he repented of his pride in thinking he could question God. We get to thinking that too, don't we? Why is this, God? How come you allowed this to happen to me? 
we begin to question God. We don't look and see the love of God that's for our interest and our good, and there's nothing that can hurt us. Like Paul said in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and call according to his purpose. That's all I need to know. I don't need to understand all the little ditty-gitty details. All I need to know is to trust God because he loves me, because he's the creator. He is the power. <coughs> and so the answer as to why God does what he does is because he's God. That's the reason he does it. You going to argue with him? <laughs> And if you question him and ask why, he's liable to tell you it's none of your business. And he does in many ways. He's told you what he wants you to know, what you need to know to stand in a wicked world, to come into his presence. You need to know. He's told you. And anything beyond that is merely, uh, well, like the question, where did God come from? You couldn't understand that if, if he told you. He did tell you. He said, the I am. He told Abraham. Abraham said, what, who am I going to tell Pharaoh that sent me? He said, you tell that man, the I am sent you. Now in Hebrew, as well as the Greek, because Jesus made the same statement before Abraham was, I am, he said to the Jews. That statement is profound. It speaks of no beginning, but it always, always was, always will be. Do you understand that? Well, then don't question God, because there's a lot of things, uh, basic things that you don't understand and never will. You see, Proverbs says that you and I are born into a, a dimension called time. That's all we know. God's not in time. That's why Peter says that a day with the Lord's like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. He's not in time. Eternity has no time. Has no beginning, has no end. You understand that? <laughs> well, go to Harvard and they'll tell you all about it. You bet they will. <laughs> So there's a lot of things that God actually tells you it's none of your business. Stay out of my business. You couldn't handle it if it's turned over to you. And so uh, if he's told you, believe it, and if he doesn't, trust him. Now that's what God uh, calls on folks to do. Believe what he said and trust him for what you don't understand. Uh, I don't like that answer sometimes, but it's the only one I've got because it's the one that God gave me. If he's given me the answer to my question, I believe it. If he hasn't given me the, the answer to the question, I trust him. And the question why is out of place. Question God. That's to call him into judgment as though uh, you're going to debate with him and, and condemn him. I don't need to know why. I need to know who. That's all. I don't need to know why God is doing things. I just need to know that God is doing it 
and does he love me? I just need to know what those two things. He loves me. How do I know he loves me? Calvary. Calvary was his signature performance that proves his love for humanity. Now if he loves you and he's got all of this ability that uh, deity's got, why don't you just trust him? And so if I know who, uh, why doesn't matter, does it? If I know God's doing it, why he's doing it is beside the point. What one thing, uh, what one thing do I know about why he's doing it for my good? And again, that brings us to Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good. Look at your life. All the things that's happened to you. All the things that happened to you are working for your good. Didn't say they was good. It said they worked for your good. To them that love God to call according to his purpose. Is there anything down here that can hurt you? Can I know and peg down and say he does everything he does for my good? Absolutely. Now, not everything is good, bunch of things bad, uh, bad things, but in everything that happens, what's God do? He works them for good in my life. How he does it is his business. Somebody says, I can't understand that. Can you believe it? Absolutely. That's the point. Now, if you can understand it, we'll put your name up here on the board and call and call you when we get in trouble. No, you can't understand that, but you can believe it. And that's how he concludes this great section here in Romans 11, before he gets to the so what section. This is the doctrinal section before he gets to the uh, living section, the so what section. He concludes by saying, God's wealth, God's wisdom, and God's knowledge is so deep, you can't understand it. But so uh, abundant that you can trust him. And so that's his doxology. Beginning in verse... 32, uh, 33. And so, when God rejected the Jews, was that for their salvation? It certainly was. When God has shown you that you stand rejected because of sin, because sin is a separator, Isaiah, what is it? Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. The Lord's hand isn't short, Isaiah said. He told Israel that. The Lord's hand isn't short that he can't save. That's not the problem. His ear's not heavy that he can't hear, but your sins have separated between you and God so that he will not hear. Our time is up, and that's wonderful because we finished out the 11th chapter. I began to wonder if we were going to finish it, didn't you? 
Oh, ye of little faith. Well, that's our study for this evening. Next week we'll go in uh, to the practical section of Romans. And by practicality, I mean here's where Paul gets down to the living life in everyday life. Because he's going to start out, I beseech you, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. He's not asking too much. It's your reasonable service. And in the process, don't be conformed to this age of man, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're doing when we study God's Word in renewing of the mind. And we're being transformed from the conformity of this world, this age of man. We're learning the principles and precepts of righteousness. We learn that abortion's wrong. Let me just put it in simple terms. We learn the rules about marriage. You don't take on marriage uh, to see if you can find the perfect mate, you know. And that's what a lot of people do. They'll take on a mate and swear to live faithful till death do us part. And it isn't five miles down the road till uh, they're saying, well, I think I made a mistake here. Because you ain't got the money, you ain't got the means, you ain't got this and ain't that. You don't agree with me, so I'm calling you and I'm getting another one. And another one. And another one. You, you, you've been listening to Hollywood, haven't you? Elizabeth Taylor and some of them. They go through husbands like, Well, what would we compare it to? I mean, it's a daily thing with them. I mean, they get married one day and divorce the next day and grab another one. It's like changing shirts or whatever. Anyway, that's the age of man that we're not to be conformed to, but rather to be transformed from by the renewing of the mind. That's why we study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, but handling the right to work truth. All right. I ain't going to say no more. Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. <clears throat> Preachers have a problem. You can't get them to shut up. When the trumpet shall sound and, and the dead shall arise and the splendor immortal shall envelop the skies, when the angel of death shall no longer destroy and the dead shall awaken in the morning of joy, in the morning of joy, in the morning of joy, we'll be gathered to glory in the morning of joy. In the morning of joy, in the morning of joy, we'll be gathered to glory in the morning of joy. When the King shall appear in his beauty on high, and shall summon his children to the courts of the sky, 